So, Joey, thanks so much for joining us for Bookable Space Audio Literary Salon this evening. My pleasure. We're going to just jump right in because I'm super nosy. What led you to write An Unofficial Marriage? So several years ago, I was looking for what's my next book going to be. And I realized how much I struggled with coming up with plots. So I had this very naive idea that if I told a true story that was based on a biography, I wouldn't have to make anything up. (laughs) And this is going to be so much easier. (laughs) Because everything else I felt like I could probably handle it, you know. Gosh, making a plot. So um, I went to the, I was in LA at the time visiting friends and I went to the Los Angeles Public Library and I went to the biography section, which is in alphabetical order. And I went up and down the aisles from A, starting with A and um, trying to find a biography that would speak to me that I thought you're just the only person in the world who can write this as a fiction. And um, I was just about ready to give up. I had three or four books in my arms, but I wasn't, you know, kind of lukewarm. And I got to the letter V, so you can imagine I was really getting scared by then. (laughs) So when I got to the letter V, I saw this thing called The Price of Genius. And it was a biography of an opera singer called Pauline Viardot. And so Pauline Viardot was the most famous opera singer in the world in her heyday. But nowadays, most people don't know who she is or they've never heard of her. She was also a great composer. But because I, my early training was to be an opera singer, um, I knew who she was. And I thought, this is now talking to me because now I feel like I have authority with this person's life. I know what it's like to be an opera singer. I know what you have to go through. It's a tremendous discipline, like being an athlete or a dancer because your instrument is your body. So I grabbed that book and I took it and started to read it. And I couldn't put it down. But the first thing I learned very early was that she was the love of Ivan Turgenev's life. And Ivan Turgenev was one of my favorite authors. My family is Russian extraction. We had all the Russian authors at home. So I was like, he was my uncle or something. You know, I just loved his work. And so I now had the opportunity to talk about somebody's work that I adored and speak with authority about another opera singer. And um, they spoke French, so I didn't have to, like, I could read it. (laughs) I'm not going to say I can speak it, but I could read it. So, you know, if it had been in Russian, I would have been in big trouble. But he wrote to her in French. So, um, yeah, that's how I got started. I just fell in love with the story. Yeah, and it took me about five years, really, to do it because it required so much research. I'm not surprised. I'm going to be asking you about that in in a moment. But first, can we have a reading, please? So I'm going to read you from the very beginning of the book. And um, this was the moment that changed Eva's life. Pauline Viardot had been um, booked to sing in the very first season of Italian opera many, many years in St. Petersburg. And this guy, Van Turgenev, at that time, had just published, self-published, which in those days had a whole different meaning because most things were self-published. Um, he had published a long poem, which was a form that was popular in those days. And it had gotten a good review from a famous, a very respected um, critic. So he was starting to get recognized, but he was like a nobody. 
And she was the most famous singer in the world. She was so famous that before she even got to St. Petersburg, there were daily articles in the newspapers about her, her family, her background. Her sister had been an incredibly famous opera singer who died at 28 and then became a legend like Marilyn Monroe for dying young. And she had to follow in her sister's footsteps. And her father had been a really famous singer and composer. So there were all those stories about her. And then once she set foot in St. Petersburg, she was hounded like, you know, Elvis Presley or something. And um, everything she did was in the newspaper, every inch of every dress she wore. So, and he's like kind of a rich guy whose mother, well, his mother was one of the wealthiest women in Russia, but she kept him on a very tight allowance so she could control him. So he had to sneak into the very top, uh, cheapest seats at the, at the opera house to see her. St. Petersburg, 1843. Winter falls on St. Petersburg like a white curtain. One day, an ice flow appears on the Neva. The water's royal moisturizes, hovering over the city. The next morning, the river is firmly frozen, with ice so thick the wooden bridges are removed, and carriages roll across wherever they like. Overnight, the colors all disappear, obliterated by the winter snows, leaving only the wind moaning at the edges of the windows. Everywhere there is snow. It covers the houses, streets. The ice on the frozen canals is beaded in powdery white. Day and night, snow falls, while the wind, wailing down the wide boulevards, sweeps it into hills and valleys. In early November, St. Petersburg is cold, harsh, and glorious. But in the uppermost gallery of the Imperial Theater, high above the stage, the heat rising from thousands of enraptured bodies renders the air stifling. Here, where the environs are unsuitable for ladies, only men are permitted. They roost in narrow rows, mercilessly squeezed onto hard wooden benches, delighted to be there. They understand not a word being sung and have only the vaguest notion of what sort of entertainment an opera is meant to be. But every perch is enthusiastically occupied. Ivan Sergeyevich Turgenev, unaccustomed to such claustrophobic conditions, is much too expensively dressed for such a cheap seat. His long legs are bent at an excruciating angle, knees to chest and he hunches his broad shoulders to avoid the men on either side of him. When he arrived, he found the situation so untenable, he thought of escaping at the first interval. But then she appeared on stage, a tiny figure so far below him that through his opera glasses, she appears both real and imaginary. Her voice, though. Her voice is so close beside him, she might be softly into his ears. A voice so beautiful, he was to die listening to it. The sound pours so smoothly into his ears, flows down through his body, reverberating in his chest and belly, pulsating between his legs. And he stays, although he is unable even to adjust his feet without treading 
on his neighbor. At the final curtain, he scans row upon row of red and gold boxes, watching the aristocrats, the intelligentsia, even the wealthy Jews of St. Petersburg. The audience is in a frenzy. Women dressed in white gowns and covered in gems frantically tap gloved hands against folded fans, and men in a splendor of uniforms applaud wildly. Young ladies in the stalls throw their top hats into the air, calling, Viado! Viado! The curtains part, and she steps into the spotlight. Pauline Viado Garcia so small yet so majestic, sings into a deep curtsy, lifts her head and crosses her hands over her chest. Through his opera glasses, he can see that her strange, dark face is covered with bewildered tears and he weeps with her. Then she is gone and the enormous chandelier is lit, illuminating the hall. High above in the gallery, men climb over Ivan's knees, thrust elbows to his back as they push and shove one another toward the interminable stairway that leads down to the street. For three quarters of an hour, he is unable to move, oblivious to the rough valenkis that trample his calfskin boots. He imagines her reclining in a dressing room filled with flowers, a gossamer robe revealing the contours of her body, soft black hair flowing over her shoulders. Until an old usher leans over him, breath sour with the remnants of cabbage and onions. Even Sergeyevich raises damp eyes and hurries off. Oh my goodness, how beautiful. And what a reading, too. I love being read to, but my goodness, you did voices, you did the silences, you did, like, it was amazing. So thank you so much. So can you tell us about how did you decide and how did you decide what you could fictionalize and what needed to stay true to life events? So this is the conundrum that faces all who dare to tread in the, in the direction of historical fiction. And the thing is, you have to remind yourself that you're writing fiction because otherwise you're going to be completely paralyzed. You can't tell all the whole truth and make a good story at the same time. You know, your first, your first duty, your obligation is to your reader. You, your job is to keep the reader reading. They stop reading. You're, you failed. And so you've got to make them want to keep reading. That's the whole game. At the same time, you are so worried that some historian or expert in the field is going to read your work and come to your house with a loaded shotgun <laughs> that, you know, if you really think about that, you're going to die. So, so, and in my case, I mean, as I was writing, I was falling in love with these people. And it became incredibly important for me to be true to them as I understood them. So the rule that I made up, and I think I put it in the the forward or the edit, the author's note at the beginning, is that whatever I could find out that was real, whatever I could find out that I knew, I told the truth. But so much could not be known, which is the fun part. And that part I had to make up. 
And so that's where I could decide what's going to happen. The, the, the really hard part is what do you leave out and what do you keep? So if I told the whole story as it was truly, truly happening, I would not have sold this book to a publisher. <laughs> because in fact, she didn't, she came to, um, she came to St. Petersburg for three consecutive seasons before Turgenev finally followed her. Oh, well, wow. that does not make a very compelling story. I had her come once. <laughs> I just, I just compressed everything that happened in those three seasons into one season. And I mean, truly, he was completely smitten with her from the very first minute he lays eyes on her. That's a fact. But until he could get her to show, give him any kind of encouragement, it could have taken three consecutive seasons. So that's an example of stuff I had to change, what you leave out, what you keep. So in the course of my research, of course, I learned everything about her from the day she was born. And when her when I learned about what her father was a little boy. And and it's an amazing, complicated story because her father was um, a singer in Spain and he was singing Zarzuela, which is like the Spanish equivalent of operetta with his father, who was also a singer. And he realized that he could only go so far in that and he had to come to Italy. And it gets to be a long story because then her father became, you know, the uh, the guy who created a lot of roles for Mozart. He became the guy who went, who was invited to come to America to form an opera company. He became the guy who went to Mexico and sang in Mexico City with an opera company. He's the guy who got, and when she was a little girl, she was with him. They were hit by bandits on the highway. I couldn't put any of that in the book because I had to say, what is this book about? And I had lunch with a close friend who's a brilliant, poet and a writer named, she's from Nicaragua, her name is Jocan Belli. And she said, so what's the book about that you're working on? So I started telling her this story. And she said, no, I mean, what's it about? And then I realized I had to tell her what the theme was. Yeah. And this really helped me. And I tell all my students, figure out the theme first, then worry about the outline. Because, you know, I ca that way I could tell what's the book and what's not the book. Otherwise, you don't know, you know, and I have clients who I'm an editor, you know, I'm a freelance book editor. Yeah. And I have clients who say, well, I think this is really going to have to be a three part series. And I'm thinking if you took out all the parts that are not the story, it would only be a one part series. <laughs> so I had to figure out where does story start? And I had a lot of false starts because first I thought it will begin when she finds out that she's going to be a singer because she was going to be a pianist and she was a really great pianist. Her teacher was Franz Liszt. And he said, well, I think I, I'd like to talk to your mother about starting a career. And at that point, her sister had died and her father died and her mother wanted to keep up the legacy of the Garcia family of singers. And she said, well, not so fast. Let me hear you sing something. <laughs> and so she was forced to give up the piano and become a singer which she wasn't happy about. So I thought, well, maybe that's the beginning of the book. But then I realized, no, the book starts when she meets Turgenev. Because what's the, what is the theme of the book? The theme of the book is timeless. Yeah. It's what happens to a woman who is completely devoted and married to whatever her 
passion is, whatever her job is, whether it's astrophysics or ballet dancing or opera singing. And that's the whole world to her. And now there's a man. But there was two I mean, men, weren't there? Huh? There were two men, weren't there? Because there was also her there were two men. She was already married when she met him. <laughs> when she met Trina. But her husband was very much a part of her career. He was acting as her manager. He was just the guy, who, you know, made it all possible so she could only sing. So she couldn't give him up. No. <laughs> but she, but he was old enough to be her father. And now here is this man who's her age and who is super duper handsome. <laughs> and also super duper wealthy. Uh, yeah. Although, I mean, he was always borrowing money from them because his mother wouldn't give him anything. So, um, you know, she kept on a very short allowance. And then he would make money by writing stuff. Eventually, he started to get paid for that. But eventually, he made more money than they did because his mother died. Because. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> But anyway, <laughs> no, I don't, something about the way you said that makes me wonder who if he was a suspect. <laughs> no, 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 he wasn't at all. <laughs> she was pretty old. <laughs> he was in another country. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm glad you checked though. <laughs> Rushed back to her bedside, but she died right before he got there. <laughs> oh, wow. She was a horrible person. <laughs> so, oh, that that yeah. sucks. Oh, I mean, you know, so for him, he was, it was love at first sight for him. Was it love right. at first sight for her? Oh, no. No, I mean, first of all, she didn't want to fall in love. Her best friend was George Song. And George Song said, the worst thing that can ever happen to you is if you fall in love. You must avoid this. Us. Because if you want to be a singer or you want to be any kind of artist, it's better if you don't care very much about anything else. And so Georgeson engineered this marriage to uh, Louis Gardot, the man, the man she married. And at that time, he had named the um, general manager, let's say, of the, of the opera uh, in, in Paris. And he was completely, I mean, he liked opera, but he didn't know anything about it. But anyway, he got this job her and your son said you know your mother isn't going to be able to travel forever and you know it took her many 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 decades before she could convince everybody that she could travel with her maid but this is 19th century Europe you know women didn't do that and you're going to need somebody to handle things for you you need a manager I mean you should marry this guy and he was madly in love with her her husband all his life and so she liked him and he was very good to her. So she figured, oh, this will work. I mean, she was pretty happy until she met Turgenev. And he weaseled his way into her life by befriending her husband, who said, you know, my, my wife um, is very good at languages and, and she would really like to learn Russian. Do you know anybody who could tutor her? And he went, uh, hello, me. <laughs> Because he was dying to meet her in person after he heard her sing. And so that's how it happened. And then they developed this very great friendship. And he made her laugh. And, you know, what happens? But he told everybody in St. Petersburg very early on that they in love with her. Even though she was married, he, he said yeah, publicly. Yeah, she said to him, will you please shut that up? You know? <laughs> 
I know that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh my God. I can't believe, I mean, it's, it's, I was wondering when you said about um, how everyone was watching her and everyone knew where she was going and they knew this sort of dress. And I was thinking, my goodness, the amount of effort it would have taken to have an affair that nobody knows about. And then here she goes with like this guy who is not trying to keep it secret at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was plenty of gossip. Uh, yeah. Did her husband know? Oh, sure he knew. But what Tregenev did was he befriended and her friend, her husband befriended Turgenev. I mean, his way of kind of staunching it was, he thought, to become friends with Turgenev. And so he loved to shoot. He was a hunter. One of the things I left the story because it was not part of it. But when he was a young man, her husband had his cranium analyzed because they used to think they could tell everything about your personality by the lumps and bumps on your skull. And somebody told him he was a born hunter. And so he took this to heart. He was a little skinny guy, but anyway, he was, he was a born hunter and he loved killing things. And that was a big deal in, um, in Russia. In those days when people went hunting, it was a huge event. I mean, the rich people, there would be, you know, dozens of sleighs, you know, a hundred servants. They would have sleighs just full of, you know, the banquets and, and the dancers and the music and the this and very elaborate tents. And so uh, Turgenev invited the husband to go hunting with him in on the Finnish border because Finland was owned by Russia then. And so he forged this friendship. And the husband kind of, you know, he, he played on that. Because that way he wouldn't lose her. He could sort of bring Turgenev into the family. All that manipulation. Yeah, and it got worse. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, so before you tell us too much, can we have um, another reading, please? Of course. So this is um, that's in that same year, at the end of the opera season, when she's about to leave St. Petersburg to go back to her home in France. And he doesn't know if he'll ever see her again. March, 1844. Lent has begun and the opera season has ended. With the noise of rehearsals, performances, and receptions stilled, Pauline is becoming restless. In the silence, she has begun to think of those closest to her. Her two-year-old daughter, Louisette, has been billeted for months at Noon in the south of France, watched over by Georges and Frédéric Chopin, aided by a nurse and a nanny. George sends cheerful reports on Louisette's progress, each paragraph a knife thrust into the belly. The child is walking now. The child is losing her baby teeth. The child chatters like a chaffinch. Alone at a table by the window in her study at Demidov House, where she so often met with Turgenev, she is trying to draw her little daughter's portrait from memory, and it is not going well. Already this morning, she has completed pencil portraits of her beloved Ninon Georgesand, with braids wound round her ears, not sparing her double chin. Her dear Chip Chip, Frederick Chopin, 
only slightly exaggerating his long nose. Her older brother, Manuel, a singing teacher at the Conservatoire de Paris, elegant with a fine mustache, and her sweet mother, Joaquina Garcia Sitches, matronly in a demure lace cap. She hopes that by drawing them, she will manage to bring them closer to her, and she has given them all mouths that smile at her, eyes that gaze at her affectionately. She plans to have the portraits copied and sent to France, more convincing version of those perfunctory little notes designed to assure loved ones that they haven't been forgotten. Louisette's portrait is proving to be difficult. What must she look like now? Pauline hasn't seen her daughter in months, and children of that age change almost daily. Is it possible she would no longer recognize her own child? She sketches a round baby face, a halo of curls, pauses, lost, her pencil hovering over the paper. Outside her window, the snow shivers in the wind as it falls, and she pulls her shawl closer around her throat. Rain comes slowly to Russia. In early March, there is not the slightest sign that it will ever arrive. But at noon, there is no wind, and the sun, feigning warmth, has tricked Pauline and Yvonne into leaving the sledge and walking part of the way back along the Nevsky Prospect to Demidov House. Ivan Sergeyevich has been lying when he told her that he knew an excellent lithographer who could copy her drawings. But this morning, when he appeared to fetch her, the address of the best printer in St. Petersburg was in his pocket. He has found yet another reason to be with her, to be useful to her, to serve as her guide and interpreter, to be important in her eyes. In a few days, the Viardot will begin the long journey to Vienna. Pauline has been engaged, traveling overland while the dirt roads are still packed hard with frozen snow. But at the moment, Ivan Sergeyevich is thinking only of Pauline's hand resting on his arm. Beneath the bulk of warm clothing, he feels her body brushing his. He is trying to memorize the color of the sky, a blue that threatens to turn gray, the color of her cheeks flushed from the cold, the smell of her cloak, of wool, of fur and lavender, and he's struggling to lock those precious details into a gilded chest from which they can never escape. The broad avenue opens onto an immense square as they approach the monumental Kazan Cathedral. Ivan has prepared a little speech. The words are trembling on his lips, desperate escape, and he finds it so painful to hold them in that his mouth forms an agonized grimace until he becomes powerless to stop them, and they tumble out in a great rush. You'll be leaving soon. His voice is squeaking. Why must it always squeak the moments when he needs to sound the most serious, the most masculine? He pauses, <clears throat> clears his throat. Now that he has begun, he must find the courage to continue. Forgive me for saying this, but allow me to open my heart to you once more. When I told you that I told you that I loved you, he hadn't meant to beg. Oh, he sounds so pathetic. Pauline steps away from him, distancing herself. He would like to snatch that word love back. Perhaps he have, should have said care or affection or even esteem. But those words would have been false. 
He had to say love. And having said it, he has no choice but to continue to try to reel her back to him. He goes on talking like a fool. Dear God, he feels the fool. You asked me to promise never to say those words again. And what happened to his breath? He can't finish the sentence and has to stop to breathe in and out before he can go on. And I have not said them, but I have felt them. I will never stop feeling them. Why did he say that? Perhaps I had no right to speak. Pauline has lowered her head so that all he can see is the top of her bonnet. If only she would look at him. He could see what she is hiding. He could read her face. He begins to ask questions to which he has already told her the answers. What will he do in Petersburg for the remainder of the season? Where will he spend the summer? He may never see her again, yet in those last moments she chatters. He has embraced himself for scolding, even anger and rejection, but he never imagined that she might reply to a second declaration of his love by merely changing the subject. She has smiled at him, laughed with him. Her eyes have held his. She impulsively kissed him, and he... What had his foolish imagination, his blind hope, allowed him to suppose? He answers the question simply, politely, but he goes on trying to face, bending his head down, turning it this way and that, peeking under the brim of her bonnet. Let there be a smile for me lurking there, something to relieve this torture. Let her turn to me, oh, please. Having exhausted her supply of questions, she looks up but not at him. She looks off into the distance, speaking in that full, ringing voice of hers, so resonant he could swear the sledge horses waiting in the square have lifted their heads and pricked up their ears. You speak of love, but I'm a married woman. Yes, he knows that. She is married to a fine fellow. Louis Viardot has treated him with nothing but kindness even has dared to say, your wife is the greatest singer. No, she's the only singer in the world. Or your wife is the most extraordinary woman I've ever known. Always referring to the woman he loves as your wife. If Yardo suspects his feelings for Pauline, he would never be so indelicate as to mention it. She is shaking her head now, as if trying to shake her thoughts back into place. I am even more married to music. I must go wherever I am engaged. I came to Russia because I had little chance elsewhere. The thrones of the opera houses of Europe are all very firmly occupied. I have rivals everywhere. My contract in Paris was not renewed because Julia Greasy, who is no more than a stupid goose with a beautiful voice, hired a clax to cheer for her and to jeer at me. She bribes the critics with lavish gifts, and my notices, which were glowing when I made my debut, turned disastrous. Even when I return to Vienna, where I had such a success last season, I will have a rival in Eugenia Tadolini. She is not looking at him. Her face is lifted toward the sky, toward the sun. But I'd go mad if I could not sing. I understand music in some deeply instinctive way. I can snatch the notes from the page and send them spinning into the souls of those who hear me. I need the opera stage. 
in creating a role, I give birth to another human being almost as surely as I burst my little daughter, Louisette. He watches her walking slowly away from him along the cathedral colonnades, hands thrust into her sable muff. She moves with the haughty grace of a queen. Her head, held high, appears to float weightlessly on her long neck. He calls after her. You must surely know that you are the greatest singer in the world. She continues walking, speaking without turning to him. I may be the greatest singer in Russia this season, but I know very well what I would have to do to please the audiences in Paris, to win their applause and their support. It would mean flattering their bad taste. I would have to sing bad music prettily, and I detest prettiness in art. I prefer that they should come to me. And then she stops. He's up to her now. Each time I open my mouth to sing in public, I risk everything. No matter how loud the applause, no matter how prolonged the ovations, no matter how enthusiastic the reviews, my success is only temporary. It takes all my energy, all my concentration to survive each performance. An artist who truly cares about her art had better not care very much for anything else. She turns to look at him and he is sure he sees it. She was able to hide it in her voice, but he finds it in her eyes. She touches his arm and he feels as if she is embracing him, pulling him close to her with a gloved hand resting on the sleeve of his heavy coat. He tries to imagine that this moment will last forever, that he will always be at her side, watching her face, her body close to his. They are approaching Demidoff's house, where he will say goodbye to her. He assures himself that he will see her again. It's unthinkable that these moments will be the last he will ever spend with her, but time will drag. At first, he will savor the ephemeral joy of his memories. Later, when he begins to feel the enormity of the distance between them, the longing will be excruciating. At last, when he knows the day, the hour of their next meeting, he will be counting the interminable minutes. I, I may write to you. You will not write anything my husband may not read. I will swear to be discreet. If you will promise to read the words I am not permitted to put on paper. Jean. She has never before called him Jean. He has been Monsieur Turgenev, then even Sergeyevich, never Jean. I am not free to love. His eyes close in rapture and a kind of dread that he will be unable to bear such bliss. That he can never ask her to leave her husband that she will leave Russia, that he will all alone. All the thoughts that will torment him when she's gone are far from him now. She said that she was not free to love him, but all he heard was the single word, love. In the entrance hall of Demidov House, she places a gloved hand on the polished brass railing of the grand staircase, a foot on the carpeted bottom step, and then she turns. Give my regards to the good Major Komarov and to our dear friend, Madame Panayeva. Then she bends her knees in a deep curtsy 
and looks over her shoulder laughing, and she hurries up the steps. At the lake, leans over the railing. He is still there, looking up at her. She calls down, write to us, love us always. Us. What a, my goodness, what tension. And the, the narrative voice, and it's just really compelling. Thank you so much. Before we go, can you tell us where can we, where would you like us to find the book? Well, I like, to, I like to support small bookstores. Of course, you can buy the book in all the online places. My favorite one is bookstore.org because a percentage, percentage of the money goes to support small bookstores. And um, and so that's my favorite. And it's, you know, it's available as an ebook and a hardback at this time. Hopefully someday it'll be a paperback and an audiobook. Uh, that is wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us, for the readings, for giving us the insight. I really appreciate it. Just thank you ever so much. I had a great time. It was a pleasure. <laughs>